It's time for Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, inviting the atheist, agnostic, and skeptic to examine for themselves the evidence for the Christian faith. We are all limited by what we do not know and by the things we think we know but are not true. Dr. Joe Mott earned his Ph.D. at LSU and was a distinguished math professor at Florida State University for 38 years, helping to write three math textbooks and authoring over 30 research articles in math. He is now the host of this radio program, Defending and Commending the Faith. Here is Joe Mott. I've been discussing C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Chapter 4 of Book 1 of Lewis's book is entitled, What Lies Behind the Law? Lewis means by the word law, not the Mosaic law, but the law of human nature, the law of right and wrong. Lewis writes on page 33, we want to know whether the universe simply happens to be what it is, for no reason, or whether there is a power behind it that makes it what it is. Since that power, if it exists, would be not one of the observed facts, but a reality which makes them, no mere observation of the facts can find that out. There is only one case in which we can know whether there is anything more, namely our own case. And in that one case we find there is suggestive evidence. Or to put it the other way round, if there was a controlling power outside the universe, it could not show itself to us as one of the facts inside the universe no more than an architect of a house could be a wall or staircase or fireplace in that house. The only way in which we could expect it to show itself would be inside ourselves as an influence or a command trying to get us to behave in a certain way. And that is just what we do find inside ourselves. Surely this ought to arouse our suspicions. Lewis uses the analogy of a postman delivering letters on the street to make the point that the law of human nature comes to every individual as a letter sent by someone or something from outside the universe. Lewis says, Suppose someone asked me, when I see a man in a blue suit going down the street leaving little paper packets at each house, why I suppose they contain letters. I should reply, because whenever he leaves a similar little packet for me, I find it does contain a letter. And if he objected, but you have never seen all these letters which you think the other people are getting. I should say, of course not, and I shouldn't expect to, because they are not addressed to me. I'm explaining the packets I'm not allowed to open by the ones I am allowed to open. 
It is the same about this question about the power behind the universe. The only packet I'm allowed to open is man himself. When I do, especially when I open that particular man called myself, I find that I do not exist on my own, that I am under a law that somebody or something wants me to behave in a certain way. I do not, of course, think that if I could get inside a stone or a tree, I should find exactly the same message, just as I do not think all the other people in the street get the same letters as I do. I should expect, for instance, to find that the stone had to obey the law of gravity, whereas the sender of the letters merely tells me to obey the law of my human nature. He compels the stone to obey the law of its stony nature. But I should expect to find that there was, so to speak, a sender of letters in both cases, to the stone and to the man, a power behind the facts, a director, a God. Lewis extrapolates from his own private experience of the moral law within to conclude something about everyone else's experience. Lewis himself speaks of it as a power from beyond the material universe, a someone or something behind the moral law who was sending letters to every individual. Here seems to be the argument from book one. Premise one, there must be an absolute moral law. Otherwise, disagreements would not be possible. Promises and treaty keeping would be unnecessary. We would not make excuses for breaking the law. Premise two, this moral law cannot be herd instinct. Otherwise, the strongest moral idea would always win. And it doesn't. We would act from instinct, and we don't. Sometimes our instinct is to help someone in trouble, even though it goes against our interests. Some instincts would always be right, and some would be wrong. Third premise. The moral law cannot be mere convention. Not everything is social convention. For example, mathematical concepts. Judgments about the moral values of a society only make sense if the basis of the judgments is independent of society. Premise four. The moral law cannot be the law of physical nature, as the moral law is not a descriptive is but rather an ought. Situations which are factually convenient may be wrong. For example, betrayal of a friend. To argue that what is moral is what is good for the whole human race does not explain why I may do something that is against my interests. Premise five. The moral law cannot be mere imagination. 
as we cannot get rid of it even if we want to. We did not make it. It is impressed on us from the outside. Premise 6. The moral law must reside in a mind as it is an ought rather than an is. Moral laws come from minds, not from matter. Just as an architect is not part of the building, so the source of the moral law cannot be part of the universe. Conclusion. Therefore, there must be a mind which is the source of moral law. I said at the end of the last episode that Lewis says, all I have got to at this point is a something which is directing the universe and which appears in me as a law urging me to do right and making me feel responsible and uncomfortable when I do wrong. I think we have to assume it is more like a mind than it is like anything we know. Because after all, the only other thing we know is matter. And you can hardly imagine a bit of matter giving instructions. But of course, it need not be like a mind, still less like a person. I beg to differ with Lewis. I think he has proven more than his last statement. I ask, what are the attributes of this source of moral law? Here is a basic fact. This someone or something can't give what it does not possess. So if it gave a moral law, then it must itself be moral in its own character and nature. And if what the source of moral law gives is good, then the source itself must be good as well. And it gives instructions, so then it is a mind. It seems to me that something that is moral, good, and the mind giving instructions must be, therefore, personal. Not surprisingly, Lewis elsewhere gives a version of his moral argument. Based on the essential unity of moral doctrines in different societies and cultures, so these societies and cultures got letters somewhat like what he himself got and what you and I have gotten. Premise one, moral laws imply a moral law giver. Premise two, objective moral laws exist. Conclusion, therefore a moral law giver exists. The first premise is self-evident though some will disagree with that assessment. Call it a source, a guide, a power. I like the words lawgiver. The weight of this argument rests on the second premise that there are objective moral laws. Lewis said that in his book, The Abolition of Man, he gives support for the second premise in that societies and cultures have essentially common moral laws. The evidence for this second premise is strong. It is implied in our judgments that say the world is getting better or worse. 
How could we know that unless there were some standard beyond the world by which we could measure it? How can we know the line is crooked unless we have a notion of what a straight line is? Such statements as Hitler was wrong have no force if this is merely an opinion or if Hitler's moral judgments were right or wrong merely depending on the cultural norms. If Hitler was objectively wrong, then there must be a universal moral law beyond all of us to which we are bound. I think most of the world would agree Hitler was wrong. In his book, On Guard, William Lane Craig says, I initially thought that the premise two of his moral argument, that objective moral values and duties exist, would be the most controversial premise in the argument. Let me say his premise two is a bit different than Lewis's premise two, that objective moral laws exist, but their content is basically the same. Craig continues, In my debates with atheist philosophers, however, I find that almost nobody denies it. It might surprise you to learn that surveys taken at universities reveal, perhaps contrary to impression, that professors are more apt to believe in objective moral values than students and that philosophy professors are more apt to believe in objective moral values than professors in general. I've found that although people give lip service to relativism, 95% can be very quickly convinced that objective moral values do exist after all. All you have to do is produce a few illustrations and let them decide for themselves. Ask what they think of the Hindu practice of suti, burning widows alive on the funeral pyres of their husbands, or the ancient Chinese custom of crippling women for life by tightly binding their feet from childhood to resemble lotus blossoms. You can make the point especially effective by using moral atrocities perpetuated in the name of religion. Ask them what they think of the Crusades or the Spanish Inquisition. Ask them if they think it's all right for Catholic priests to sexually abuse little boys and for the church to try to cover it up. If you're dealing with someone who's an honest inquirer, I can guarantee that almost every time that person will agree there are objective moral values and duties. Of course, sometimes you find hardliners, but usually their position is seen to be so extreme that others are repulsed by it. But if it's true that there is a universal objective moral law, then the conclusion of Lewis's argument follows immediately. There is a universal moral law giver. Moral laws are intrinsic to persons, not to things. Things like fairness, faithfulness, generosity, love, kindness, goodwill, 
loyalty are values that belong to persons. Therefore, what Plato called the good must be a personally embodied good. It cannot be some abstraction. It must be embodied in a personal being, which we call God. Thus, the moral lawgiver is God. Soon I will discuss the dilapidated house of atheism. Thank you for listening to Defending and Commending the Faith with Joe Mott, a production of Wave 94 Radio in Tallahassee, Florida. If you have any questions or comments for Joe, please forward them to Doug Apple at Wave 94 at this email address, dougapple at wave94.com. And be sure to join us every Monday evening at 6.45 p.m. on Wave 94 and subscribe through your favorite podcast app, Defending and Commending the Faith, with Joe Mott.